You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Dr. Stu Tobit, the director of the School of Biomedical Engineering here at CSU, has been wondering what makes people different since he was in high school. And then I got into college and I actually started in a, in a laboratory when I was a freshman, second semester, semester freshman year. And that laboratory was particularly interested in studying sex differences in development and hormone influences. And, and as a second semester freshman, I didn't really know what that meant. I, I got to work with rats in a laboratory and that was interesting. But when I thought about how to tell individuals apart, the first thing that you realize is that every individual is different and if you actually want to understand mechanisms mechanisms by which people become different, then you actually have to find a way to lump people together so you can compare different conditions. When you start to think of how people can be different, the qualities that come to mind are things like short versus tall, or blonde-headed people versus red-headed people. Or, according to Dr. Tobit, there's no better split than thinking about males and females. Theoretically, most people assume that across the planet, there's roughly 50% of one and 50% of the other. Fast forward a number of years and, and you sort of realize, if you think about it, that while the lumping is really good on the front end, um, it's actually very incomplete for understanding the differences between people. Because ultimately when you get to people, you actually have to split. And so, the emphasis on people describing themselves by pronouns is to me better described by describing the biology. So um, if you're gonna be described by what dis- what sort of would classify you as quote unquote male or female, you might be better off by giving somebody your chromosome, but that's actually not enough. So you might have to give them your genetic composition. Uh, you'd wanna certainly know whether or not the gonad was an ovary or a testis. And, and actually that's, it's not a binary there either because there's an ovotestis first described back in 1917 by a guy named Lily. And then there's the hormones that are produced by the gonads. And, and the, it's not a matter of which one they produce, both ovaries and testes both make androgens and estrogens, which are the, what people think of as male and female hormones, but in fact are made by both. And then there's signal receivers or receptors that receive both. So if you wanted to describe you know, who you were I might say for me that I'm a Y chromosome, SRY, testis, testosterone, androgen receptor, and, and that'd be a mouthful. And, and you know it's just easier to, to not even worry about it because it's anything but binary. And that's just on sex, which is just one possible way to divide people along some sort of dimensionality. Um, clearly you can divide people along age, right? You might say that some people are older, some people are younger, but then what do you do with something like progeria, which is yeah. an, an early aging phenomena in which kids that are nine years old might project as if they were 69 years old um, and where that might actually be traceable back to the genome. But what does that tell us about aging? Because different organs and different cells might age at different rates. So whether you're thinking about sex, age, life and death, all those are things that are not as binary as I thought back when I started in this business. And lumping is a way simpler way to deal with it. And uh, so I go back and forth now. So after all this time, starting by saying, okay, I'm just gonna study males and females and that'll tell me about what, what are the potential behaviors 
and or susceptibilities of a group of people, you can't get to the answer until you split it back out on the other end. It's been a long journey to learn that lumping was good, but splitting could be better. To this day, Dr. Tobit is still studying sex differences in his research lab, specifically how sex differences affect structures in the brain that control neuroendocrine functions and behaviors. We brought him on the podcast to have a discussion about hormonal programming, which describes how changes during early development affect later life. Dr. Tobit's research has shown that there are many hormonal events that happen within sensitive periods of development, like the prenatal stage or infancy, in which hormones have the potential to cause permanent changes in anatomy and physiology into adulthood. While we did dive deep in our talk about development, I think my greater takeaway was the reminder that how we get to where we are is the result of a totally and utterly complex cascade of hormones and signals and genes and cell-to-cell communication that it's no wonder why human traits are anything but binary. We learn about the importance of environment in influencing our health, and we come back and forth to this concept of lumping versus splitting, and why research should both avoid and sometimes embrace binaries. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So first off, thank you for doing this. I'm excited to have this conversation. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. Yeah. It's an interesting topic. And so where has this trajectory kind of led you? What, what kind of topics have you fallen into over the course of your, your career in your lab? So when I first started in the lab and it was my own lab, one of the first things that happened is we were looking for sex differences in development as a signature of, um, let's call it morphology or anatomy or structure. And so in 1989, I published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that indicated that we can find differences in a cell type in the brain at one particular point in, in development that was a very important cell for directing cells to migrate. So the one thing unique about the brain is that in in most of the organs in your body, the cells are born and they divide and then then they fill out the organ. But in the brain, the cells are, they divide, but ultimately they have to walk away from where their place of birth is. It could be the same thing as if I was a cell and I had to walk across the CSU campus. That's a long, hard journey to do in terms of figuring out what are the cues and what do you have to do to get there. And so starting in the long time ago, I started asking questions about does do hormonal signals drive the ability of a cell to actually migrate? Does it drive either the cell type that I published in that 1989 paper, or does it affect the cells that are moving? And where is the uh, potential locus of where that impact could be in terms of how the brain functions? So mm-hmm. it started out with a simple thing about, okay, here's a cell type. It's actually called a radial glial cell. Um, and that particular cell is a really good guide cell 
for cells to move. And that started a whole bunch of questions that I still keep asking about. How does one cell know where to go? Mm-hmm. And now I've gone from asking that press question in developing brain to answering that question or asking that question at least in even adult gastrointestinal tract or basically in your intestines. Because some of the things that happen in early development in the brain happen in other parts of your body uh, throughout life in ways that we probably wouldn't have thought about 30 years ago. Right. So let me take a stab at trying to summarize what you just said. Make sure I check my own understanding. So it's cellular differentiation is what you're talking about. It's like how cells go on to become the tissues that they are in the body, you know, your lungs, your heart, your stomach, and how they know to then go on and migrate and become those different tissues. And, And where you position yourself is studying how hormones influence that process. Is that correct? So, except the, the only, you, there's not as much migration for all organs. The brain is, or cells that call themselves neurons, as if cells could actually call themselves anything. <laughs> but to the extent that, that, a, that a cell might call itself a neuron, it has more ability to move around than most other cells. Not all. Your immune system is particularly good at moving around. But the, the neuro, nervous system is particularly good at this trick. And it actually sends cells that call themselves neurons as far away as the gut. And a lot of them stay in the brain. The spinal cord is part of the central nervous system. So you could sort of put them together in in different ways in terms of how you think about them, but they sort of obey a set of rules. Yeah. But all those interactions are where I ended up splitting myself all the way down to, right? So I couldn't explain the behavior of a person without thinking about what about the parts that person's made out of? And ultimately, hormones don't do anything to the organism as a whole. They only work as a function of getting to someplace where there is a receptor that listens. And so understanding who's talking and who's listening inside of a body ultimately is the secret to unraveling. um, How do we get to who we are? What are some of the conditions that you have studied from this hormonal programming perspective? So um, a lot of the work in the late 90s got to a collaboration between myself and a woman at Harvard at the time. So I was in Boston until 2002 as part of Harvard and then UMass, and then came to CSU in 2003. And so we were at Harvard at the same time, and a person introduced us. And her interest was in sex differences in, in human brain and schizophrenia and depression. And I normally, as a, the basic scientist that I described, interested in cell behaviors, so that's about pretty far away from thinking about schizophrenia and major depressive disorder. Um, but she had access to something that nobody else that I knew of at the time had access to. And that was a cohort of pretty much about 18,000 pregnancies um, that were born between the late 50s and early 60s, for which they actually had data on fetal environment in a way that you could think about, well, is there an animal model where I can actually do a manipulation and then take a look at some of that cell biology biochemistry and try and relate all of them together. And so we started collaborating in the late nineties. And um, so I got to thinking about how the changes in positions of cells, the impacts of hormones might ultimately provide a model for how 
that might impact cognitive disorders or psychoses like schizophrenia or major depressive disorder. And it and we started by thinking about what would be the impact of preeclampsia in women uh, during pregnancy and how that might you know change the offspring and whether or not males or females would be preferentially susceptible to those insults during early development. So it turns out preeclampsia for the most part is more dangerous to male offspring than it is to female offspring. Mm. Then you can begin to think about, well, why would that be? And what are the things that would have to be different about the cells and the their ability to talk to each other that could be different at different points in the lifespan that would get you to an off to a disorder that might have a prevalence that would be more in females or more in males. And it, while there's a paper written in the mid 80s that used to talk about selective male vulnerability, there are in fact a fair number of disorders where there's selective female vulnerability, ranging from major depressive disorder, which is twofold greater in females, to schizophrenia, which is more prevalent in males, or um, so anorexia nervosa, which is 13 times more prevalent in females than it is in males. So all these things have differential um, susceptibility. And the question still comes back to, well, okay, we just defined at the beginning of our conversation that sex is not binary. So in the process of thinking about the chromosome, the gene, the gonad, the hormone, the receptor, where in that process do you get bias that goes more in one direction than the other? And we could begin to think about those questions in the collaboration because she had access to whether or not there were differences in cord bloods or in the second or third trimester, whether there was any defects in the placenta and what were the behaviors of these kids in their first seven years of life? Because the original project was funded for seven years and then they actually ran out of money and didn't pick it back up for a long time. When I met this person, Jill Goldstein, at Harvard, she's still now at Mass General Hospital. The, the issue uh, was, okay, now they've actually lived a fair chunk of life. So you could actually look back and say, what were the environmental influences on top of genes, chromosomes, hormones, receptors that you could sort of begin to maybe tease these things out. And I didn't see any other way to even contemplate the question um, from where I stood as a basic scientist without having a human data set where you could actually get to know some of those answers. So we can, again, ask questions about, okay, we can treat an animal in early development in a certain way and, and see how it turns out and then say, well, do we have humans in the cohort that maybe show indications of this same prenatal exposure? And what do they look like in adulthood? What is their pattern of, say, functional magnetic resonance imaging how does that look different in people that either were treated one way or another or had one disorder or another over the course of their lifespan? So mm. they have now, they're now in their 50s and, and going into menopause and, and on the female side. So there's now questions that you can ask whether or not certain fetal exposures, say, cause early onset or whether certain fetal exposures are more prevalent in one disease um, cohort over another. So again, let me check my understanding. So this line of research that you're doing, you're, you know, that you've been doing since the late eighties, it sounds like 
is looking at, you know, what kind of prenatal exposures are happening and how that influences, you know, development later on in life. And, you know, you yourself focus on the animal model side of that question of, you know, looking at how these mood disorders come about in animal models. How changes in the behavior of animals can be reflected back in what we think might be happening in humans. So to give you one example, I'm hoping this is not going to get too into biochemistry weeds. <laughs> okay. But stop me if it does. I'll try. Um, I'll try. We were looking at the impact of a particular neurotransmitter on brain development. We think it actually helps determine whether or not certain groups of cells get together or don't, or get together in aberrant ways than they normally would. Um, the particular neurotransmitter is interesting because it is a derivative of an amino acid. So somewhere back in most high school educations, you, you hear about 20 amino acids and they, the building blocks of everything that you have. Well, this particular amino acid is, it's called glutamate. And if you take away one part of that amino acid, then it becomes a neurotransmitter. Okay. And so we were looking at this, um, the receptor for that um, neurotransmitter in brain and whether or not it was impacted by sex and other things in development or hormones in development. And we went into that cohort of humans that I talked about, and we started asking whether or not there was an alteration in the receptor for this particular uh, neurotransmitter, more prevalent in a depressed population than the control. And it turned out, at least in the first set of scans, before, you know, when we were just starting going, there was the potential for there to be an interaction um, in what might call, people might call the genes by environment world of looking at um, whether this receptor or the gene for this receptor might be altered differentially in males and females in depressed and non-depressed patients. And at first it actually looked like it was gonna be uh, a relationship that was gonna work. And it's still not completely off the board, but it's not as fully developed in, in the direction we were originally hoping. This was about eight years ago at this point. Yikes. Um, but it's the way in which we think we can go back and forth by, by taking a human cohort that's well-defined and then taking animal models and asking, okay, what about this molecule? What about that molecule? What about, what does it do to brain structure or function that we can go back and ask more detailed questions? What is the grander significance of, of approaching mood disorders in this way? You know, looking at prenatal exposures and how those influence development later on in life. What does that say about aging? If, if that's a, a fair question. So briefly, I, I touched on the phrase genes by environment. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that the holy grail of, uh, of the pharmaceutical industry is to know that by treating you with a certain compound, um, you will prevent disease. Probably the most common and easy go-to for that is to think about uh, statins, that somehow somebody might actually measure your blood cholesterol and go, oh man, you should actually be on a statin. And oh, by the way, you're gonna to have to be on a statin for the rest of your life. So I'm gonna actually sell you a statin every day for, you know, Maybe you get diagnosed with a high cholesterol at age 45 and you live to the age of 90, you got 45 years of statin therapeutics. And there are lots of other things like that. 
um, where it's the holy grail for the pharmaceutical industry because they can give you something and interact with you all the time. If you think about that relative to somebody who might become depressed, and if you knew that there was a susceptibility to that depression because of a certain gene by environment interaction at some point in the lifespan, um, maybe if you've got gene X and you get to puberty and that's more likely to turn a certain switch that if you then come into a circumstance where you're in high stress, right, that you're gonna exhibit behavioral symptoms that are get out of control, that maybe you can prevent that. Maybe you can do something in a, in a proactive way. And if at every stage along the developmental cycle from early in development all the way into adulthood and into senescence, you knew what the predictors were of a certain behavior. Well, predictors, while again, going back to my very first story, right? Well, predictors, you can describe them as stress, light, heat, um, slapping around. Ultimately, in order to affect the cells in your body, you actually have to talk to the cells in your body. So that has to get translated into something that's gonna be biochemical. So again, you're back to the pharmaceutical company. If they know what predicts what, then there's a way to actually impact on whether or not you can change the outcome in a positive way. In a cancer situation, you could end up say saying, well, Brock one and Brock two, there's a lot of women out there that'll do double mastectomies because they think that'll prevent the cancer. Yeah, I wouldn't actually take that as a good bet. Um, and you could just as well put a lot of that money into saying, okay, what is it about those genes that when exposed to something in the environment will then predispose cancer? Because it's a lot simpler to just take away that interaction that turns those genes into being dangerous and a lot simpler. Mm -hmm. So there's the holy grail in how you can use predictive validity to try and change ultimately a bad outcome. What would you say is the long-term impact of this research that you're doing? If you had to generalize it and, you know, say you're close to retirement and you're reflecting on your career, what do you hope are the takeaways, <laughs> the successes that you had? I'd like to think I was able to contribute to the understanding of the dialogue between cells and ultimately at different levels of time, how that dialogue among cells um, translates back to how people are different and how you might think about impacting people for the better, whether it be a behavioral disturbance or a neurological disturbance. I and mean, there are to give you a personal example, there was a, uh, a, a person in my wife's family who um, changed her behavior when she got to an older age. Uh, she hit 70 something and all of a sudden she was mean to everybody around her. And my point to the family was, well, you gotta think about what happens if you were to have many strokes in a brain. We're not really good at the diagnostic level for figuring that out, but the family not thinking about anything other than the behavior of this particular woman, um, blamed it just on the person. Right. My point was to try and tell them, you know, people are the end product of what's going on inside of them. And, and that's impacted by the E or the environment, by things that they're told and other things that happen in their environment. But it's also impacted by things that happen inside their, their bodies. And so in this case, trying to, generate understanding by understanding 
where the influences are both within and outside, how they go together and how we might be able to, um, whether or not issue a therapeutic for somebody with strokes or do something else that would be able to take somebody who everyone is screaming at for one reason or another and decide whether or not, you know, there's something that could be done in the form of a therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And, and in aging, you run into, I, I don't, I started my career on the early end thinking about prenatal influences on adult behavior, but on the other end, you're just reversing some of those processes or doing them less efficiently. And so it's not divorced to some extent. People would tell you that if you can't make new neurons in adulthood, then you're more likely as you get older to become more depressed or more likely to be at risk. Turns out that drugs that are good at treating depression or the symptoms of depression in humans are also drugs that maintain cell division capacity in that brain place I called hippocampus before. But it's a correlation and you can't do any more than a correlation at this point in human history by doing scans in humans. You could only do that by giving the, that drug and looking at cell division in another mammal where you have access to it. You know, I think there's this tendency that, you know, you get older and you're reflecting on your life and, you know, you recognize that, you know, maybe you can't run as far as you could when you were 20 years old, or you can't eat as much food as you once could when you were 20 years old. And you, you notice these differences and these changes happening in your body. And I think obviously there's this tendency that people feel guilt about that. Like, oh, I had a, I could have done more to prevent this from happening and, and, you know, place that guilt on their shoulders. But I think kind of something that I'm hearing from what you're saying is that, there's also all of these hormonal and mechanistic things happening inside your body that are naturally going to happen as we get older. And so, you know, shouldn't shoulder all of that blame because these hormonal changes are happening and they're different between men and women. And and it's important to really, you know, narrow down how that happens in the body. What are the cell type changes as you're referencing so that we can figure out what those predictors are and, you know, maybe stave off some of these changes in the future. And to some extent, to to go back to the aging per se, there is evidence to show that the progression of Alzheimer's is different in males and females. And Mm -hmm. the, the big question in that space is, do females become more susceptible because menopause is mostly abrupt? I'll put air quotes around that. It's not as abrupt as here today, gone tomorrow. It, it may co- take several years to get there, but is significantly slower than andropause, which would be the senescence of, of putting out testosterone on the male side. So is that part of the difference between the two in susceptibility to Alzheimer's? And one of the people that, that works at this um, center at, at Harvard that Jill has is, is founded only in the last year or two, um, which is an integrative center for the study of sex differences in, in cardio, cardiovascular and brain science. Um, some of that could be actually due to gender, which completely messes up any conversation relative to the biology of sex. Yep. But, it, but it does reflect on behavioral differences that are societally in, in place. So the responsibilities of somebody defined as female versus the responsibilities of somebody defined as male are very different in many different societies. Not all, but but many. Just as there are 
paternal species and there are maternal species, there are patriarchies and matriarchies, you know, all those things would have different gender assignment problems, but gender assignment in some countries might actually be part of the precipitating factor for Alzheimer's early onset in females because they've got a double hit. So how you put those together becomes more complicated because it's not simply hormones and you can't look at it in the absence of all the other factors as well. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you can fix some things by using estradiol over estrone in some people, or whether or not you can fix something by you know, changing the um, assigned responsibilities from a bigger level, it's gonna take a lot more research. And I, if I was to look back and say, I hope there's some one thing that I could have done, it's at least get people to get away from lumping when they're dealing with humans. Because while I thought it was a great idea when I was an undergraduate, it becomes a really complex idea to do um, when you look at human populations. So I'm going to take a little diversion here because we're rounding out our hour of this conversation. And I want to ask you this question that I ask everyone that comes on this podcast, which is, you know, what is your best advice for the person listening to this podcast for healthy aging? What kind of tips do you have from this career of research? I tell everybody in all the classes I teach, they should care about evidence. And they should look for evidence in everything they do. Everyone, you know, the ultimate split is everyone's their own experiment. You can always experiment with things that make you feel better or not by simply doing them or taking it for two weeks on, two weeks off. Can you tell a difference? Um, You know, the the myth of aging is that your body's ultimately going to fall apart. and, And that's for the most part, not true. If you fall apart, you know, when you're 65, um, chances are there's other things going wrong uh, that you can blame things on than simply aging. Um, But you are your best source of evidence. And so I I go back to, you know, thinking about whether or not um, taking a banana before you go to sleep is a good thing or a bad thing for you. Bananas are high in one of those amino acids that has a tendency to get turned into a a neurotransmitter in your brain that that tends to promote sleep. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Don't know. Um, Different people are going to function with more or less sleep. You might ask yourself, if I go two weeks and I actually change the amount of sleep I get, do I feel better or worse? So you're your own best source of information. And by listening to a lot of people who are basically doing that lumping exercise, you're listening to a lot of people that might not be talking to you but be talking to somebody else. So the best advice I would give is uh, experiment on yourself. Health but, is health is not one size fits all. <laughs> no. And and it's the ultimate example of why splitting is is the hardest thing to do for for research purposes, it's the hardest thing to do for diagnostic purposes, it's the hardest thing to do for for therapeutic purposes. But it's also the one thing that you have to think of when you're thinking about you and not your spouse, not your significant other, not your neighbor. You know, they're they're going to need a different set of um, different amount of, of help in different ways. And generalizations are really dangerous. Well, Stu, thank you so much for this conversation. It definitely opened my eyes for sure. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. 
Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.